Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read the first 16 verses. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, one of the high priests, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if they be found any of this way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, neither to eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus, named Ananias. To him the, said the Lord in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And I seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hands on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So tonight we're looking at Paul and the conquest of handicap. Conquest of handicap or affliction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity privilege we have to, to look into your word tonight. Thank you for these uh, men and women who have gone before us, who have lived lives that uh, were transformed and changed and, and encouraged and, and um, brought forth fruit as a result of their salvation and the Spirit of God working in their hearts. And I pray that we'd learn and grow and glean truth and and help from them and their example. Have your will in your way. May you be glorified and honored. May we be helped. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, or as we know him in the beginning as Saul of Tarsus, I'm not sure why they changed his name or called him Paul afterward. There's really no, as far as I know, there's no explanation ever really given about that. Anyway, um, well, probably some theologian could tell you, you know, his idea of what that is. But anyway, uh, Saul was a man uh, with, with great expectations in life. The Jews had great expectations of him. It was believed he was a member of the Sanhedrin uh, at a very young age. He had, of course, been taught by the leading doctor of the law in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. Acts chapter 5 tells us that. Or actually, uh, not Acts chapter 5, uh, in his testimony before King Agrippa, I believe that's where he tells us that. 
But uh, anyway, he, but his life, of course, he, had, he was so zealous of the law and of the law, the law of Moses and the Jewish religion, Judaism, that he was so zealous and so animated and so uh, vehement about it that he persecuted Christians or anyone who opposed it. Uh, because after all, you know, to them these Christians were a threat. Just as Jesus was a threat to the livelihoods and the stuff of the, the, the Jewish temple and all that. Uh, so he's, he's, a, he's a who's who, you might say. But this is the same man who would later say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Here was a, here was a man who's a righteous, saw himself as a righteous Pharisee, who later will say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Same man who would later say that, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. That he was simply a chief of sinners. You know, he didn't glory in the greatness of his past sins. He said he was the chief of sinners. Uh, who understood that he was perfect in his, he, he came to understand that he was perfect in his position in Christ. Yet, he didn't see himself as perfect in his condition. He said, I, I've not yet apprehended that for which I am apprehended, but I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So, so he understood that I am secure in my position in Christ. I am saved. I'm sanctified by God. I have a perfect salvation. I'm going to be with the Lord when I die, but I'm not perfect in my walk with the Lord. There's some things that I like to see improved in my life. And so, let's look a little bit at this man and how he came to overcome his affliction. In Acts chapter 9, we see, of course, Saul in his condition. He was a sinner. Uh, he, he was an intellectual. Uh, it's believed that he spoke as many as possibly six languages. He was a very learned man. He quoted the poets. You know, in, in Acts chapter 17, when he was at Athens, he quoted a poet of theirs. So he was a man that was well-read, well-learned, well-educated. Uh, of course, he was taught by Gamaliel, a scholar of high repute, and he was in his own right. And so he was a very intellectual person, but intellectualism is enough. As a, somebody said, well, I think it was John R. Rice said, you know, you can, you can educate a person, but you can educate him to make him a, a, a smarter crook if he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. Morally, his moral condition was he was very zealous, of course, of the law, so zealous that he was directed to, by his own uh, to persecute Christians, which, you know, was... was was he was acting on his own conscience. And, here's the thing, this gave him high standing among men. He was well looked to. 
because he was very zealous concerning the law. The Jews, I mean, they, they thought highly of Paul. You know, Luke 16, 16, 15 says, That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination unto the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. He thought that he was doing God's service. Uh, but his, 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 of course, his morality was not judged by God's standards. It was judged by his own standard. And again, morality is not enough. You know, he was, again, uh, uh, very zealous. Uh, he was very religious, intensely religious. Proud of his religious pedigree. You know, he tells us in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. The world would have said, that is a really good man. Yeah, the world says that a lot about says that about a lot of people. Yeah, there's lots of people in this world that people think are doing really good deeds. I can give you a few names. That's not my purpose tonight. But in the sight of God, they're an abomination. They're abominable. You know, they're religious sinners or irreligious. You know, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler. So here's a man who's highly zealous, emotionally driven. You know, and, and a man who's so emotionally driven, he wants to control what other people believe and how they live. That's really what he's doing. You know, this isn't any different than, than those today who, who are trying to force people like us to condone or to endorse their same-sex marriage or their transgender, tra- tra- uh, you know, um, what do they call it? Transition or whatever they call that. And he's very, very zealous concerning this. Uh, you know, if a modern-day psychologist would say he's uh, got ADD, and uh, you know, uh, you know, like a little child, and and what he really needed, what he needed was to be convinced his zeal. And by the way, he was angry. You know, here, here's breathing out threatenings. Acts chapter 26 and verse 11, he said, I was exceedingly mad, exceedingly mad against these people, causing them to blaspheme. That means he was like in a rage against them and would, and would, would work on them, you know, and, and cause them to try and get them to blaspheme God. This is, this is who he was. But we see... Here in Acts chapter 9, he's all of a sudden brought face to face and convinced that what he's doing, you know, his hatred, his madness, his anger, his, his, his threatenings, his, all this is, is against God. It's against God. Notice verse 3 again. 
And as they journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Rise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And so he's brought face to face, and he's convinced or convicted of his error. What I'm doing is wrong. You know, notice it. Notice the Lord didn't say that you are persecuting my people. He said, "I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest." Now, the church, Jesus' church, the Lord's church, is a body of which He's the head. Now. If your body is pierced or injured in some way, does it affect your head? Doesn't it affect the whole body? Sure it does. It affects the whole body. And when somebody persecutes the Lord's church, the Lord is affected. He's the head. He's the head. And so he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Uh, and it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I often wondered about that, that phrase. And I believe what this, that means is Saul has been under some conviction that he has been doing what is wrong. That he has been working against God. And it probably, you know, and then again, I'm, a, I'm, I'm inferring some things here, but, but, you know, picture in your own mind if you were party to killing someone and that person says, you know, several things. One of the things he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And the other thing he says is, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Would that make you feel guilty? Unless you really got a hard, hard heart. Of course, <clears throat> you know, not only had Stephen said that, but I'm sure there are things that other Christians that had said to him and uh, in his presence that he heard that were, were, were causing him to get under conviction that he was he was he was being pricked in his conscience in his heart you know that word i think is used in acts chapter 2 uh yeah in acts chapter 2 verse 37 when peter was speaking on the day of pentecost when they heard this they were pricked in their heart in other words they were they were it's it's sort of like I liken it to, you know, growing up on a farm, you loading cattle on a truck, and one of the most effective ways to get cattle on a truck is if you have a shocker. We call it a shocker. It's just a thing about this long with some batteries in it. It has two, two uh, electrodes sticking out the end of it, 
and you put that up against their flank and, and hit the button and it gives them a jolt. You know, the you know, Bible talks about an ox goad. It was a sharp instrument where you go to the ox, make it move. You know, so you're causing, inflicting some pain to get it to do what you want. That's what the idea of prick is. And it says, you know, after Peter said to them and pointed out to them, you have crucified and slain the Lord, it says they were pricked. They had a guilty conscience. And they were convicted about it. And so, so Paul or Saul here being convicted about it, and this is where we see the beginnings of a complete reversal of his previous ideas, his previous opinions, not just in words, but actions. And that's what conversion is. Conversion means to turn around. Turn around. Change directions. He's no longer the proud, haughty persecutor. He's the lowly penitent. It had changed just like that. Seeking mercy. He had no alibi. No, but, 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 you know, no excuses. You see, when we get convicted, we are, it, it, conviction of the Spirit of God reveals us to ourselves. You know, the problem is, with too many of us, we don't really know who we are before God. There's several things. Paul saw a vision, and he heard a voice. There was a vision, and he heard a voice. And, and again, in chapter 9, in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So he, 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 he has this vision. He sees a bright light. He knows it's not natural light because it's too bright. And he hears a voice. You know, in, in chapter 26, he describes this also in verses 13 through 15. Of Acts chapter 26, when he's rehearsing his testimony. Uh, in verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. So it wasn't just the sun shining brightly. It was above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them that journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, so it was a light so bright, it put them to their knees, to the earth. I heard a voice speaking on me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. So he has a vision, and he hears a voice. Now, you and I are not going to get an experience like this. Exactly like this. Of course, this was in the book of Acts and during the apostolic age of miracles are associated with this time, miraculous things. Uh, but we still need a vision of who God is. If we're going to come to a proper understanding and be properly convicted, if people are going to understand 
their sin, they have to understand who God is. You know, when people say, oh, I'm not that bad. When you're making reference in comparison to God, what that is doing is justifying oneself. Because we are all as an unclean thing, Isaiah says. Job said, I'm a worm and no man. Okay, when I, you know, and, and God said about Job that he was what? He was upright, perfect, feared God, eschewed evil. I mean, surely Job could have said, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. But when he, when he heard God speaking to him, he said, I am a worm and no man. And I abhor myself. So we need a vision. We need some understanding of who God is. We need to hear the voice of God. Of course, that's through the Word of God. And of course, Paul heard the voice of God speaking directly through him. Of course, you know, again... We're going through a transitional time and we're talking about that time period because they didn't have the Word of God. It wasn't written yet, except the Old Testament. So, there was still prophecy being given, but now we have a complete revelation and God speaks to us through His Word. So we need, we need the light. Uh, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so, you know, light, the entrance of thy words giveth light, giveth understanding unto the simple. Psalm 119 verse 130 says, and so we need the, the, the entrance of the word of God in our hearts so that we can understand who God is. So we can see clearly who God is, and who we are. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, well, he's, they just got their heads in the clouds. Well, if you're in a cloud, you don't see clearly. Now, I think my house is always, always pretty clean. But if you go out if you go out early in the morning at 5 o'clock, you're going to think it's spotless. Not a speck of dirt anywhere. But at 8 o'clock when the sun's shining, you'll find some specks of dirt. Why? Because the light's on. The sun is shining. And the closer, the more we spend, time we spend uh, uh, allowing the light of God's word to fill our hearts and minds, the clearer we're going to see who we really are, who God is. You know, my suburban is always clean at 5 o'clock in the morning. But when I go out later at 7.30, it needs a wash. See, this vision 
awakened Paul to his need. This light from heaven. This is, this is God's light from heaven, and it can awaken us to our need. It can awaken men and women to their need. And the voice of God then explained the purpose and plan of God. And again, that's the word of God. God Paul heard God's words spoken directly to him. And then he, but he didn't give him everything that he was going to need to know. You know what he, you know what he did say to him? Well, he didn't say this to him. He said this to Ananias. You go to the house of Judas and you tell him this, this, and this. It's believed that Ananias was the pastor at the church at Damascus. You know, God has manifested his word through, pe- through preaching. And so we need the, 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 the purpose and plan of God explained to us. Um, this brings conviction. Of course, this conversion, this, you know, this converts Paul from a moral, mental, uh, and a volitional change. It's a complete turnaround in his life. Uh, we see this demonstrated in two ways. By what Paul said to the Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He simply asked an honest question, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, a sign of true repentance is, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. I'm willing to do it. When people are always saying, but, 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 raises a lot of questions in my mind about their spiritual state. Somebody has called that billy goat religion. They're always butting. Yeah. No, Paul said, what would thou have me to do? And it wasn't an easy task that he was given. But he asked. He was willing. We see that in verse um, 6. Lord, what would thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Rise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So Ananias is going to tell him, and in verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house and putting his hands on him. Verse 17, I, did, I think I said 7. Verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately uh, there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and rose and was baptized. And when he would receive meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. And of course, verses 15 and 16 tells us some of the things he's going to have to going to do as well. So, so he recognized, you know, he recognized Jesus uh, as Lord, as his Lord, as his Master, as his new authority. And so, there's a change in role, a rule in his life. Or there's a new order of his life. And of course, this is what he would tell the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3. You know, when he gave his pedigree about his greatness as a Jew. But then he says, 
But what things were gained to me, Philippians 3, 7, though I, those I kind of lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I cut all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. So, he has a new authority. See, before, he was with the Sanhedrin. He did their bidding. They gave him authority. He had legal rights to arrest the Christians at Damascus. He had authority. He had power. He had power to try and force people to change their beliefs. But now he's got a new authority that he has submitted himself to. And of course, new purpose. We see this by, you know, again, this turnaround is not only by what the Lord's, Paul said to the Lord, but what the Lord said to, to Saul. Uh, he has a new purpose. Uh, verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel, and bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So no longer is life a selfish engagement, doing what I want, fulfilling my desires, doing what I think is right, having control over people and controlling what they believe and forcing them to believe like I do, all of a sudden he says, no, I'm, now you're a minister. You know what a minister is? It's someone who serves. It's a servant. Paul would write to the Ephesians and say, I, the prisoner of the Lord. And it really means slave. He would often say, I, the servant of the Lord. Not only was, his, was he a servant of the Lord, but he was in service for the Lord to serve people. To serve people. So what you really see this change in his life is a sacrifice of himself of service to God and man. And, and nothing describes this or illustrates this more clearly in the life of Paul than what he says in Romans chapter 9 when he says, I say the truth of Christ, verse 1, I lie not, my conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Yeah, and then again, chapter 10, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, they might be saved. 
So he sees himself now as a sacrifice for God and man. He's willing to sacrifice himself. This is a completed picture of, of, of a true conversion. And this is how Paul mastered his affliction. You know, Paul's handicap or his affliction was not moral, it was not a natural weakness, it was a messenger of Satan. How did he conquer it? How did he overcome it? Well, like all of us would have, he asked to have it removed. And God did answer, but he said, no. Not going to remove it. Second Corinthians, we'll see that. Go to Second Corinthians chapter twelve. <clears throat> In verse seven, it says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. But he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So how did he conquer it? How did he overcome it? It never left. It was with him the rest of his life. So here's the man who persecuted people. He has this spectacular vision. Here's this voice from heaven. He's converted. He takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, to unknown places, to the Gentiles. He's, he, he's, he's so burdened for the Jews that he's willing to risk his life to go back to Jerusalem knowing they want to kill him. He's willing to be a sacrifice. And in the midst of all that, he's given all these revelations. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and many believe Hebrews. He wrote more of, the, more of the New Testament than any other of us. Except there may be more words to John's writing, I'm not sure. John wrote, of course, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, which is 22 chapters. But he, to him is given the, the revelations concerning the church. The systemization of the age of the churches. And he talks about that. So there's been much given. And there was much required. Now, 
we don't know for sure, but there's some indications in the scriptures that his appearance was terrible. The Galatians, he wrote to the Galatians, he said, you would have taken, plucked out your eyes and given them to me. It's believed by many that he had some kind of eye disease, and it's very possible it could have came from being blinded by that bright light. You know, when Ananias laid his hands on it, the Bible says they fell off like scales. Well, you know as well as I do from modern medicine, if you get too much sunburn, what's likely to happen later in life? Skin cancer. You know, I, I know several farmers you know, spend a lot of time out in the sun on tractors. Before they had cabs and air conditioning and have skin cancer on their ears or on their faces because they just got sunburned too many times. So, but anyway, he says, lest I should be exalted. You know what concerned Paul? What concerned Paul was, people will lift me up higher than they should. He was concerned about that. Lest I be exalted above measure. There was given to me this thorn in the flesh. You know, I really, this is my opinion. Again, I'm going to infer a little bit here. It's my opinion that it was something that made him look bad. So that people didn't think well of him. You know, they, a lot of people thought well of him because of, his, because of his mission's work and, you know, giving of the scriptures. But if he's really ugly, you know, then you don't think so well of him. Oh. You know, Moses, lest the children of Israel worship Moses, the Lord buried him. Because they'd have made a idol out of his burial ground. Just like they did a lot of other things. So, he, he saw, instead, he saw, instead of complaining and, and, and you know, murmuring about it and becoming bitter about it, he saw God's purpose in it. Again, lest I should be exalted above measure... Through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. You know, when we have an affliction, we need to give thought and prayerful consideration to its purpose. Where did it come from? What's it for? Now, you know, this affliction is very plain, has a purpose. We don't always know why we have afflictions. We know they are a part of sin and this cursed earth, the curse of sin. But they do remind us that we are under the curse of sin. And they ought to remind us that all of this is because of man's Rebellion against God. And it ought to remind us that we are sinners. 
That we don't measure up to God. That we shouldn't exalt ourselves above what we ought. And of course, he asked to have it removed. God did answer and said, no, my grace is sufficient. So God gave him grace to bear it and overcome the limitations it put upon him. Now, there were limitations. When he wrote the letter to the Galatians, he said, you see how large letters I have written. So it's some kind of eye problem because he wrote large so you could see it. Many of his other letters, some of his other letters, he had somebody else write them. <clears throat> but we see also that Paul's weakness was, gave evidence to God's strength. The natural thing that you and I would think or that humanity would think is, why does he continue on? Why don't he just quit and take it easy the rest of his life and take care of himself? He'd have good reason to. Why does he continue to try and write and take care of, you know, and, and look after all those churches that, he's, that he started as an apostle? It showed that God can work with people with infirmities. God can use the weakest of vessels to do the mightiest things. It's not brawn that gets the job done in the Lord's work. It's available. Availability. I remember when I was at Bible college, doctor and teacher telling the story about when he was younger. He was a deacon in church for many years, and they had this missionary come through, and he was, said he was the frailest, littlest, frailest guy. I'd about ever seen in my life, and he's going to Africa. And he said, I thought to myself, you know, he'll never make it. Because physically, he don't look like he could do the job. But he said, he went to Africa, did a great job. He said, just reminded me it's not by might. It's not by power, but my, my spirit says it's not brawn. David wasn't the greatest looking, most powerful looking guy on the battlefield the day that he killed Goliath. But all he needed was a smooth stone and a sling. God. That's all he needed. You see, somebody said this, quote, it is in the forge of infirmity that strength is wrought to perfection, unquote. Of course, he's energized by the power of God. Verse 9 says, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, where the glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know this? We would assess that the, his handicap was a terrible hindrance 
but it, it didn't seem to hinder his writing. What it did do was help remind him of his need to depend on God. You know, this affliction saved him from the danger from which it was given, being exalted above measure. You know, we don't see Paul given to pride or inflated over his apostolic privileges and accomplishments. He writes to Timothy later in his life and said, I'm just the chief of sinners. You see, he's the same man, though he was exceedingly zealous and of high emotion and feelings and, you know, that submitted himself to the Spirit of God. That would write Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, where it speaks of baptism, being buried and raised in new life and yielding to the Spirit. And, and Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we need to yield our bodies a living sacrifice. And he would write to the Ephesians, talking about being renewed in the Spirit of your mind. See, it's all about dependence upon God and the Spirit of God to, to renew your mind so that you have the strength to do what is right and not exalt yourself, not depend on your own strength. So how do you conquer? How do you conquer your handicaps or your afflictions? Yield them to God. Yield them to God. Depend on God. Not rely on your own strength. That was Paul's secret. That was Paul's secret. Though he was a man, prior to his conversion, that prided himself in his own accomplishments, after his conversion, he put his dependence on God and trusted Him. You know, the natural man would have had a tendency... I don't know. Maybe this is why he got it. Well, that's what the Bible says. His tendency would be to go back and trust and pride himself in his accomplishments, just as he did before. But God said, I'm going to keep that from happening. I'm going to allow you to be afflicted. You know, James tells us to count it all joy when you fall into divers temptation. Why? Knowing the trialing of your faith worketh patience. We let patience have her perfect work. We may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. So how do you view afflictions? Seek 
to allow God to work you through them for his glory and overcome them.